title of today's sermon is Parable of Wheat and Weeds. And it's taken from Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 43. I'm preaching through the book of Matthew, as you know, and we're um, into chapter 13, which is one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. So I'm going to need you to stay with me on this. And um, we looked last week at the parable of the soils. This week we're looking at the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And um, there's a number of different perspectives at looking at how to understand this text. So I'm going to give you mine this morning, and I hope, um, hope it clarifies it for you. Let's ask God to be our teacher, though, through the Holy Spirit. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and, and who encourage us and exhort us to live godly in this present world as we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to take us to be with him. Till that time, Father, help us to walk in harmony. Help us to live obedient lives that we might please you. May this sermon and this time together in Matthew be an encouragement towards that, and we would ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can see by the title of my sermon, our focus will be on both the wheat and the weeds. Both of these are figures. They stand for something other than the vegetation that they represent. So how we understand this parable and all of Matthew 13 has, as I've said, been the topic of great dispute. I will do my best to clarify it for you this morning, its meaning and how it relates to you. And I trust that uh, all of you will be satisfied, but I, I rather doubt that, since I'm not even satisfied. As you know, there are a lot of books and websites about the Bible, more than ever before. And there's great confusion about the meaning of Scripture. Take, for example, the teaching that is out there about the rapture of the church. Um, This past week, I received a magazine from the Friends of Israel, and the topic of it was the rapture of the church and why it's no longer being preached in churches. Well, there's a number of reasons for that, and I'm going to share one with you right now by way of video. Maybe some of you can recall May 21st, 2011, and Harold Camping with Family Radio's Wacky prediction. Watch the video. It's been a good run, everybody. But beware, because May 21st signals the start of the end of the world. Harold Camping, the 89-year-old president of the Family Radio Network, insists that May 21st, 2011, will see the biblical rapture come to pass, when God will pull the faithful into heaven, leaving the rest of the world to face the apocalypse. Camping told National Public Radio, quote, It is going to happen. There is no plan B. Of course, Camping originally guaranteed the world would end in 1994, all of which means that when May 22nd rolls around, we can get back to obsessing about the other end of the world, as foretold by the mind on December 21st, 2012. We wonder why biblical teaching becomes the source of ridicule. So how we interpret the Bible is very important. It will determine whether we follow the truth or some false teaching propagated 
by people like Harold Camping. So the paradigm that we use to interpret Scripture is essential to our understanding of it. A rightly dividing of the word of truth emanates from the way in which we interpret Scripture. The Bible can be misinterpreted by going to the Old Testament to establish biblical doctrine for the church. We see that many times. One of Camping's uh, techniques was to go to the book of Genesis and the story of Noah and interpret Jesus' rapture through that event. Well, the scriptures must be understood to the audiences to which they were speaking in order to apply it rightly. Now, in the text that we look at this morning, we're looking at the timing of the day of the Lord. Jesus his answer to that question is essential for us to understand. I hear many people today saying, when is the Lord going to return? When is the rapture going to happen? Well, for some it was in 1994, and then it was May 21st in 2011. Of course, both of those didn't happen. And so evangelical Christians like ourselves are made fools of, and we become the butt of jokes because of people like this and their failure to understand the day of the Lord. Jesus is asked that question directly, when he will return. This was the expectation of his disciples and every Jew. And as you know, Jesus answered that question by saying, the day and the hour no one knows, not even angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Clearly, clearly, the Lord Jesus himself said that no one knows the hour or the day. Not even angels nor himself are privy to that information. Only the Father above knows when the Lord Jesus will return. So then, if the Lord Jesus doesn't know when he will return, how in the world did Harold Camping know? (coughs) Obviously, he didn't. Any such in all speculation is foolish. It causes believers and unbelievers to scoff at the teaching of the day of the Lord. Now, as we examine Matthew 13, we find Jesus revealing new truth to his disciples, truth which had been concealed in the Old Testament period. And now he will reveal truth to believers, but it will be concealed from unbelievers. He does this by teaching in so-called parables. As you'll recall from previous times together, a parable is the comparison of two things, one that is known and one that is unknown. This intent of the parable is to clarify the unknown element. Now, Bible students often define parables as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Spiritual truth is revealed through this comparison in the story between an earthly reality and a spiritual reality. Jesus instructs his disciples in this text about the coming kingdom of God. As you know, one of the overarching themes in the book of Matthew is the presentation of the offer for Jesus to be king, his rejection and the interim, the the delay of the institution of the promised Davidic kingdom. So Matthew addresses his gospel to fellow Jews who had rejected Christ because the kingdom had not been fulfilled in him. 
So he uses Old Testament promises, Old Testament prophets and scriptures to teach about Jesus and argue that Jesus Christ actually fulfills the Old Testament promises about his coming. Of course, Matthew begins with John the baptizer in chapter 3 when he presents him as fulfilling the role of the forerunner as indicated in the book of Malachi. John declares, as you know, to the nation of Israel that Jesus is the expected king and that his kingdom is present or at hand or near. In chapter 4, Matthew shows Jesus declaring himself to be the king and sharing that same gospel of the kingdom that John preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. In chapters 5 through 7, Jesus teaches the principles that will govern his coming kingdom on earth. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus validates his own kingship through his working of miracles and his teaching to the Jewish people. In chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out all over the land of Israel preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That is, that he is offering himself to be the king of Israel. In chapters 11 and 12, we see the religious elites who embody the nation of Israel rejecting his offer to be their king. We must not forget that the kingdom offer was... Conditional. You can go ahead and put that first outline point up, please. It was conditional. Israel must experience a corporate change of mind concerning who Jesus is. However, the nation, again, is exemplified by the religious leaders. They reject him and his offer, attributing his works and person to that of Satan. To reject his works was tantamount to rejecting his kingdom. If there is no king, there can be no kingdom. Two weeks ago, we examined the first parable found in chapter 13, the so-called parable of the soils. In that parable, Jesus demonstrated the differing receptions of the message of the gospel of the kingdom to the Jewish people. He showed that there were four different kinds of soils, four different kinds of reception or hearing of the gospel. I suggested to you that it was four different kinds of illumination. There is a timelessness to that truth. In other words, these four kinds of reception by the soils represented by people is the same throughout every dispensation and every age. The message of God, no matter what that message is, will be received in much the same way. For example, the message of Noah was received in the same manner. The message of Jonah was received in similar fashion. And so the message of the gospel of grace is received as the four soils indicate. Next, in chapter 13, in... Verse 11, Jesus revealed that there will be mysteries of the kingdom that he will be speaking. Now, this sounds very mysterious, but it is not. The mysteries of the kingdom speak of progressive revelation. That is, previously unknown truths about God and his kingdom, which had been veiled in past dispensations, will now be revealed. Paul talks about these same mysteries being revealed, the church being one of them. So, 
what is, what is important is not to whom these mysteries are revealed to, but the revealing of the truth itself. The Lord is showing new truth, in this case, to the disciples in order to veil it from unbelievers. And that new truth is that there will be an interruption in the institution, the inauguration of his kingdom. There will be an interim period of time between the kingdom and its offer to the Jews and its inception in the millennial kingdom. So, this kingdom offer is made by Jesus, but it's rejected by the Jewish people. And so, there is this interim, this time period between its inception in the millennium. He shows them this through this parabolic teaching of the wheat and the weeds. Now, Jesus, in a sense, is warning his disciples, and by extension, you and me, that we should not judge what is happening in the world by present appearances. That's very important for you to understand. This parable is teaching that we should not judge what is happening in the world today by the overall circumstances or the appearances to us. We must wait for the unfolding of God's mysterious plans that he only knows of through time and space. Until he does this, the disciples were to wait patiently and not to put every man and person to a a neat little test and place them in a box of our own making. To be clear, chapter 13 is a minefield for interpreters. What paradigm or template that one overlays the text will either lead one to the truth, a proper understanding of the scriptures, or away from it? The template that is used by covenant theologians and the one employed by dispensationalists is quite different and leads, therefore, to quite radical different conclusions. The basis of this misunderstanding lies with the technical terms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Now, the covenantalists see a vast difference between those terms. They see one as God's kingdom above and one's kingdom on earth. And as I've stated previously, I believe that these terms are synonymous for good reason. For throughout the book of Matthew, he uses both terms in a similar manner. This can be demonstrated by the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. You'll recall he, when speaking to the rich young ruler, when he asked him what he must do to, etern- uh, to attain eternal life, to enter into the eternal state, Jesus answers the rich young ruler in this manner. I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to Enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for an eye to go through the eye of a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Both terms used synonymously. They mean the exact same thing. But others interpret these two meanings to be have, to be different meanings, to have be different places, and it leads to different conclusions. Both phrases, I believe, are employed to speak of the earthly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he used those terms synonymously in chapters 3, 4, and 10. So the question is, why would we change our understanding of those terms in chapter 13? 
to speak not of a literal kingdom, but of a spiritual kingdom, as the covenant theologians do. They argue that God began a spiritual reign in the hearts of believers. Jesus is somehow sitting on the throne of your heart. And I say to you, that is just nonsense. For when Jesus Christ reigns on this earth, he will reign in a, in a literal land, territory, the nation of Israel. He will la- He will literally reign over his kingdom from Jerusalem and he will have rules which his kingdom people are to abide by, called the Sermon on the Mount. A literal kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom in your heart. See, this all goes back to the difference between Israel and the church. Covenantal theologians, reformers, see the church in Israel as an extension of one another. They are one and the same. Dispensationalists like myself, who I believe rightly interpret the word of God, see two distinct programs, one for Israel and a completely separate and different one for the church. We are not kingdom people. We often hear that taught from pulpits. We are not dwelling in the kingdom. We are in the church. You and I are church people. Those in the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ will reign and rule over are Jews. There will be 12 thrones for the apostles. Now, we will co-reign with them, but as the church, and there are 12 thrones upon which the elders of the church will sit. So the confusion over this is what leads to bad understanding, bad interpretations of this text. So, What can keep us from interpreting all these kingdom references as a spiritual kingdom rather than a physical kingdom? As a dispensationalist, we should understand that the promises that Jesus made to Israel have been delayed. When he was rejected at his death, burial, and resurrection, those promises to Israel were delayed. Do you remember when Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives, ready to ascend to heaven? What was the first question, or should I say the last question, the disciples asked Jesus before he departed? When will your kingdom come? When will your kingdom on earth be established? Hey, we thought it was going to be now. And Jesus said, when you see me coming back to this exact spot, then my kingdom will ensue. He did not reign then and there because the nation of Israel rejected him as king. So this interim period, which lasts from the end of the dispensation of the law through the tribulation and completes when Jesus Christ returns in his second coming. This was the concept that Jesus was revealing to the disciples to help them better understand what will take place. This means these parables, all of them in chapter 13, are not relevant to the church today, but apply directly to ethnic Israel. Most Bible students try to apply these parables to the church. Just as you've heard ad nauseum, the four soils being applied to the church today when they are applied directly to Israel. Now, as I said, don't miss this, there are timeless truths within these passages that apply across every dispensation. But the direct application is to Israel. Who's Jesus talking to? 
He's talking to Jews under the law. He has not been buried. He has not been risen again yet. He is not talking to the church. It's not even, it's not even become an institution. It's just a, a concept that has been thrown around a little bit by Jesus. So, the church did not exist when Jesus spoke this to his disciples. It does not come into existence until his gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection is completed, and Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends. So they would have been looking at Jesus when he talked about this parable of the kingdom with lobsters coming out of their eyes if uh, Jesus had meant the church. They would have had no context or understanding in which to place this. It would have been meaningless. So then we must ask, why would Jesus even have bothered to explain this to the disciples if it was meant for the church? Why just not pass over it. Why does he bother explaining it to the 12 disciples? Hearing this would have all been meaningless to them. The Jews were expecting a cataclysmic event to take place when Jesus Christ or whoever it is that would be the Messiah King would come to rule. It would disrupt all of the Jewish society and it would be a fomenting of a, dis, of a division between the sons of light and the sons of darkness, which we see an allusion to here in Matthew 13. Therefore, Jesus shares this parable with them to, ask, to, to answer two unstated questions in the text. They are unstated, but they are there in kernel form. First, why would his faithful kingdom followers have to live in the midst of evil on this earth if he was king? Secondly, that being so, why is there no hope of justice and freedom from evil in this world during this interim period? So let us examine the Lord's teaching with all that I've said as a basis for our interpretation of Matthew 13, and we pick up in, te- in the text on, on page uh, 976 and verse 24. Matthew 13, verse 24. Page 972 in the pew, by the way, I should say. The parable is presented. Jesus is speaking to the same crowd which he has been speaking. They are assembled on the the banks of the Galilee, the lake, and Jesus is out in a fishing boat speaking to them just a little bit offshore. The crowd that was listening was a diverse bunch. It contained the 12, many others of his followers, Jesus' own family, including Mary, interested Jews from the area, and of course, the religious elites who wanted to catch him in some faux pas that they might accuse him. Now, again, page 972 of our Pew Bible, Matthew 13, verse 24, we read, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Jesus is making a comparison here. He is using the words like or similar, and he's comparing the kingdom of heaven to a farmer's field. As I've stated, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are one and the same. Jesus is the king sent by the Father from above to rule over the nation of Israel. Jerusalem would be his capital, as I've shared previously, and the rules for life in the kingdom would be the Sermon on the Mount. He will govern over them by those rules. So he's comparing the kingdom of God here to a man sowing good seed, good seed in his field. This is figurative language. 
Now in verse two, he continue, or verse 25, he continues. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. The identity of the men is not given. Could be the disciples. Could be someone else. Apparently it's not important to the story. Just important that the landowner had servants. But while these servants are sleeping, they're oblivious to the circumstances taking place around them. The enemy has crept in. And what's he doing? He's sowing bad seed in the same field that the landowner, the farmer, had already sown good seed. And then he quickly departs without being seen. Now, what are these tares? We are told the landowner was quite sure that the seed that he planted was good seed. So what are the tares or the weeds that the evil one, the enemy of the landowner, is planting? There's been a lot of speculation about what kind of weed was sown. Most Bible students argue that it was zizania, which is a, a common weed in the Middle Eastern region. This is a type of noxious ryegrass, also known as darnel. Darnel can be poisonous if it is not separated from the wheat when it is milled. It's a dangerous plant because it's indistinguishable from the wheat just until harvest time. These two plants look so similar that they are referred to in Israel as false wheat. Now, if it was Donald Trump talking about it, he would say it was fake wheat. Darnell closely resembles wheat and to the point that the grain begins to appear on the ear. And it seems that this act of planting weeds, sowing weeds in a neighbor's field, was a common act of revenge in the Middle East. If you got mad at your neighbor, you'd go throw weeds in his garden. And in fact, the Roman emperor had declared that such an act was a serious crime with a very serious punishment. So then... This depicts a real-life situation. Now, if this was just a regular field with a very light infestation of weeds, the landowner could send out his servants, and they could deal with it by careful weeding. But this is a heavy infestation. So if they are sent out into the field and start pulling up the shoots that they might misidentify, they're pulling up good weed at the same time. So... If the farmer tries to pull out the weeds and his servants, he risks pulling out all the good wheat with the bad wheat because the bad wheat has a very much stronger root season. The Darnell has a, a very big root season which would pull out the good wheat with it. Now the landowner must wait then until the wheat is ripe. It looks brown where the Darnell has a blackish uh, color to it. Another problem with Darnell is that it can become diseased. It can become infected and poisonous, as I said. And so if the Darnell is not separated from the wheat before or during the harvest, and it gets milled, it will make people sick. Some will even die. So we read in verse 26 that the wheat and the Darnell get co-mixed. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares tares or the weeds, became evident also. It's only, as I said, when the heads appear in the plant that the difference is clear to see for those who are harvesting it. Verse 27, The slaves go to the landowner then and ask, Sir, 
Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Gee whiz, master. How did all those weeds get mixed into your field? You see, they had no idea that the enemy had come and sown the weeds into the farmer's field. The slaves were completely in the dark about the tactics of the enemy. So the landowner answers, saying to them, An enemy has done this. They responded by asking him, Do you want us then to go gather them up? Do you want us to go out and weed the field? Do you want us to go pull up the darnel and pull up some of the good wheat with it at the same time? And the farmer, knowing this, says he's not going to take that risk in verse 29. He said to his slaves, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, that's the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. The risk was just too great. He couldn't lose his crop. So in verse 30, we read that, He says to the servants, allow both of them to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares, bind them in bundles, burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Once both the wheat and the weeds were fully mature, the harvesters could see the difference and separate them into different bundles. Please note the results. The weeds are gathered into a bundle and burned. And and then the wheat is gathered into, notice, circle it, highlight it, my barn. Jesus personalizes this with the personal pronoun, my barn. Only the good wheat is brought into the barn of the master. A careful study shows that the emphasis here is on a side-by-side comparison of the wheat versus the weeds. The Lord says, let them both grow up together. Only when the two have come to full maturity can they be separated and dealt with. One by fire and one gathered into my barn. As you might know, the Old Testament speaks about harvesting quite a bit. It's used by the prophets in a figurative manner to speak of divine judgment. The bad seeds are separated for punishment and destruction by fire, while the good seeds are kept for the Lord. Let me share a few verses with you that demonstrate this use in the Old Testament by the prophets. Jeremiah, in chapter 51, verse 33, says, The Lord God of Israel says that the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. That's where the harvesting is done. At the time it is stamped firm, yet in a little while... The harvest time will come for her. Babylon will be judged. Then the prophet Hosea says in chapter 6 and verse 11, Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. Judah was wicked at this time. When I will restore the fortunes of my people. And the prophet Joel also uses the term harvest as well in chapter 3 and verse 13, saying... The Lord will put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Tread the winepress is full, and the vats overflow, for the wickedness is great. The focus, obviously, of this verse of these verses is on judgment, the judgment of the wicked for bad, and the judgment of the righteous for good. Now, returning to our text and the parable, notice the people involved in this hearing of the parable. Jesus says, he gets out of this boat, I imagine, he walks back and he says, the crowds have left and Jesus went into the house. That is the house of Peter in Capernaum. 
So his disciples came to him, as we saw in the video, and they asked him, Explain to us. We don't get it. Explain to us the parable and the tares of the field. Pretty straightforward request by the disciples. So having sent the multitudes away, Jesus, now surrounded by the twelve, will explain the parable to them. The parable is explained by Jesus to the Jewish disciples. He's revealing to them a brand new truth. So it's important for us to note at this point, the Lord, the Lord has turned away from the crowds. He's not speaking to the interested Jewish people. He's not speaking to the religious elites who have rejected him. He's only speaking to his disciples. That is the audience. In the privacy of Peter's house, Jesus explains the disciples by starting with the principal players in the parable. Verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Just as the previous parable of the soils, which began chapter 13, Jesus is the sower, or the Son of Man, the King of Israel, who plants and grows good seed in his kingdom. He only plants good seed in his kingdom. The field represents the kingdom of God. The Son of Man is Jesus representing uh, the, the rejection of the nation of Israel uh, of him as the Messiah King. He sows the good seed in verse 38 in the field which is the world and as for the good seed these are sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Now to some this is confusing. The field here is described by Jesus as being the world. That should not throw us off. Israel was called by God to take the gospel of the kingdom to the rest of the world. But they failed at doing so, and that's one of the reasons that they are judged. An illustration of this is found in the life and the ministry of Jonah. He was sent to the Gentile world with a message that if they have a change of mind, if they repent then they will be delivered from physical destruction. Jesus states that the good seeds sown are the sons of the kingdom and they were to take the gospel of the kingdom to the world. That the king is here, but he only sowed good seed in his field. The Lord, the Lord here is using these titles in a figurative sense. So it's a bit weird to think of people being planted in the ground, isn't it? Good seed is equating to his servants in the kingdom. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. They are not pods. Why does this thing keep cracking? They are not pods out of which aliens will spring. These are people who have been saved, if you will, have been converted, have trusted in Christ as the Messiah during his three years of public ministry. They would then be sent out by Jesus, as you know, with the gospel of the kingdom message to sow seed into the ground to produce more disciples. 
Now, there's not only good seed, but we see bad seed in this text. Jesus is not the only sower, as you know. The other sower is the evil one. And he comes, the enemy does, and he sows bad seed. These are the tares or the weeds, which stand figuratively for bad people. If the good seeds are the disciples of Jesus who take the gospel of the kingdom to Israel and the world, then the bad seeds are unbelievers who oppose the work of the kingdom gospel. As the opposition to Jesus and to his message, they are principally the players we call the Pharisees, the scribes, and the other religious elites of Israel. We can assume correctly, I believe, that it includes them. Those who are believers in Christ as the promised Messiah are the good seed, and those are called the children of God or the kingdom, children of the kingdom of God. So then the good seed is not to be identified as the word of God. That's what the reformers and the covenantal um, interpreters do. Rather, the good seed are those Jews who have trusted in Christ as the Messiah. The field is not human hearts, as some say, the covenantal people say, but it is the world of Israel and the rest of the world. The tares are the children of the evil one who, verse 39 tells us straight out, the enemy who sowed the bad seed in the field is the devil. So we can say with a 100% certainty the enemy that sows the bad seed is Satan. We can say also with certainty that the weeds that grow up, the bad seed, are his followers. The context makes this clear in the book of Matthew that the followers of the evil one are the religious elites. There are others as well. These are the people who have led the Jewish, the the religious elites are the people who led the Jewish people astray from trusting in Christ. Jesus has called them blind guides who have led them away from him. One of the devil's most effective weapons is false religion. And that's what the religious elites have been peddling. While to some, religious people might seem to be spiritual and genuine, we know that many spiritual people or religious people are not genuine. Just as the wheat and the tares looked very similar. One was true and one was not. Jesus is revealing through this parable how to tell the difference. Most people are fooled by religiosity but it is simply masquerading as true spirituality. The weed seeds, when sown amongst the good seed, became indistinguishable until the harvest. So then the counterfeits grow up within the kingdom of God and are indistinguishable from real kingdom dwellers. I am reminded of the Jewish disciples that were following Jesus until they came to a certain point and they left him. Remember John 6, 6, 6? But the best example outside of the religious elites of bad seeds is the disciple named Judas. Jesus states that when the harvest is ready, the angel reapers will come and harvest at the end of the age. To be clear, Jesus is not referring to the end of the interim period called the church age. This is not a reference to that, but is a reference to the seven years of tribulation. He's dealing with Jews in this text, not the church. 
If you want to get confused about the parables in Matthew 13, just go ahead and inject the church, which doesn't exist, into it. Jesus is addressing his Jewish disciples. Now, as I pointed out, the harvest comes at the end of the age, just as all the Old Testament prophets asserted. The eschatological ingathering of Jewish believers being separated from unbelievers is called the separating of the sheep from the goats. So, that takes place at the end of the tribulation when punishment is instituted or the righteous go to the millennial kingdom to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Now, some covenantal theologians and reformers insist that Jesus or excuse me, that the devil is sowing false doctrine here. That's what the seeds are, they say. But that cannot be so, for the angels come as reapers who are sent by the Son of Man to gather in the good people, the good seed, and the bad people, the bad seed. The Lord concludes his explanation of this parable with an exhortation to Israel. Not to the church, but to Israel. He says in verse 40, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. This speaks of the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ, not the rapture of the church. This is immediately before the millennial kingdom begins, following the tribulation. The bad seeds are removed from the good seeds. They are gathered up for judgment and they are burned by fire. It's This fits perfectly with what Daniel stated takes place at the end of the 70th week. And what Matthew again will write in what's called the Olivet Discourse, which we will study in a few weeks or months in Matthew chapter 25, where he writes in verse 31 of Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, that's the millennial kingdom, and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as the, sep- as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to all those on his right, Come, who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or give you drink? And give you something to drink. And when he, and when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, the extent as to which you did this to these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did unto me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed one, to into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or strange as a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, 
Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Therefore, go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, looking back at verse 40, in this text that we've been studying in Matthew 13, we notice that all of this spoken of occurs at the end of the age. Jesus is speaking to Jewish disciples about the end of the current age that they are living in. And he says that this must happen before his messianic kingdom can ensue. If you notice the word end in your English text, that is the Greek word Santelia. It describes the end or completion of something. Verse 41 states that at the end or completion of the tribulation, the end of the age, the summation of all things, and we read, the Son of Man will send forth his angels. Who comes with Jesus at the rapture? Who comes with Jesus at the rapture? Jesus comes in the air and meets the church and takes them out, right? No one comes with him. Who comes with Jesus at the end of the age? The angels and the church come with him and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Two very important points there. He will gather out of the church. Isn't that what it says? Looking at your text, is that what it says in verse 41? He will gather out of his church? No, it says he will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. This is speaking of ethnic Israel who has opposed his person and his works. They are the stumbling blocks. Just ask a practicing Jew today what they think of Jesus. What will they say? He's not the Messiah. They are stumbling blocks to the truth. The Lord exhorts the Jews here not to be stumbling blocks. That's exactly what the prophet Zephaniah says to Israel in chapter 1 and verse 3 of his book. The Lord speaking through him says, He will consume man, beast, birds, flesh, and the stumbling blocks, along with the wicked I will cut him off from the face of the land. These are Jews who have rejected the king. There it is. Not only does Zephaniah say it, but another Z guy, Zechariah, also warns the Jews of this. If they refuse to obey Yahweh and reach out to the nations of the world, they will be cut off. They will be judged. In chapter 12 and verse 2 and 3 of Zechariah, we read the Lord saying to Israel, Behold, I am going to send... Excuse me. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, the tribulation, it will also be against Judea, and it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone, says the NASV. Same words as stumbling block. For all people who lift it up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. There it is, again, at the end of the tribulation, just before judgment, the nations of the world come at the behest of God to punish Israel for its sin of rejecting Christ as the Lord and King. 
Not only are they not to be stumbling blocks, but they are not to, as we read here back in our text in verse 41, they should not commit lawlessness. The angels will separate the wicked Jews of Israel to be punished from the righteous Jews of Israel to be rewarded. In verse 42 we read, And they will be thrown into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly that's imagery. The fiery furnace is imagery. It probably harkens back to an earlier story in the Old Testament where there were people thrown into a fiery furnace. Do you remember that? My shack, your shack, and a bungalow, all thrown into the fiery furnace in chapter 3. They were thrown in there. But do you remember what happened? They weren't burned. The righteous are always saved from eternal fires. But who got burned? The servants of the evil one. The servants of Nebuchadnezzar were burned up, and there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's speaking of great pain and great mourning. This same phrase is used by Matthew again and again of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is always used about those who reject him as the Messiah. In chapter 8 and verse 12 we read, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. The sons of the kingdom, get it? Will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They were sons of the kingdom by birth as Jews, but because they rejected Jesus Christ they are cast out of the kingdom. Again, in chapter 13 and verse 42, we find it here, this text. He will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in chapter 22 and verse 13, Matthew says the, king's, the king says to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness, into the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is about Jews who reject Christ as the king whom God sent. I was hoping for an amen there, but... Maybe some other crowd will do it. Anyway, I love consistency. And here we find consistency in the book of Matthew. It's always speaking about the same people, to the same people, about the same thing. And in verse 13 and verse 28, in the book of Luke, we find another use of this same phrase when he writes, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now get this, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are those? the patriarchs of the Jews, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves will be thrown out. Why? Because they rejected Jesus Christ. Specific judgment to Jews for rejecting the king. And just before the millennium ensues, in verse 33, all of this fits so nicely with the rest of Scripture. It's unbelievable. This fits perfectly. Matthew quotes Daniel next. It harmonizes. Don't you love it when the Bible does that? It confirms itself. He quotes Daniel from Daniel 12, verse 3, in verse 33, when he says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sons in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Here we have a huge contrast being made between the stumbling blocks, those who committed lawlessness, with those who shine forth like the sun. Those who embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah King will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heavens, like the stars. Throughout Scripture, believers are always... Remember when Moses' head shone? 
Remember when Jesus was standing at the Mount of Transfiguration and all of those with him shone like the brightness of the sun? Throughout Scripture, brightness of shining light pictures the righteousness of God and his glory. Remember the Shekinah glory? How were the children of Israel led through the wilderness? By a bright light, a flaming fire. What happens at the first day of Pentecost? Tongues of fire shout out. In Exodus 13, Moses tells us that the Lord was going before Israel in a pillar of fire and a cloud by night that they might travel safely. He did not take away the pillar or the cloud nor the um, pillar of fire before the people. According to Matthew, Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments were as bright as light. Paul describes the Philippian saints in a similar way, saying, show yourselves to be blameless and innocent, appearing as lights in the world. There it is. Righteous people shine bright as the sun. We will be clothed with white garments that shine as bright as the sun in the time that is to come. These righteous ones are guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God to be with their heavenly Father for an eternity. All the while, the servants of the evil one will be punished in eternal fire where they will suffer weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Daniel describes this judgment later on in that same text as to their shame and everlasting contempt. Now the Lord closes this parable with a familiar refrain. You've heard it over and over. He says to the Jews listening to him, his own disciples, he that have ears, let him hear. Respond to the truth of the word of God. If there was any hope for ethnic Israel, for Jews, it was to respond to the truth of the person and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. They must experience a change of mind about who he is in order to avoid the coming judgment. This parable has not been fulfilled as of yet, but it will be. At the end of this interim period... The church will be taken out and it will not end. It will only end when the tribulation has come and all hell rains down upon the nation of Israel and they finally do what? They have a change of mind. He is the Lord. He is our king. And many will embrace him and enter into the millennial kingdom with him. And the rest unto eternal punishment, the gnashing of teeth and weeping. This is written to the Jew who rejects the king of Israel. It's not written to Gentiles under grace, but Jews under the paradigm of the law. We must recognize that these mysteries were not secrets to be enjoyed by a few. There's no secret handshakes. There's no secret code to enter into eternal life. Jesus is not revealing a mystery that only a few get to know. Jesus is not sitting on the throne of your heart today. He's in heaven with his heavenly Father. This is not about a mysterious kingdom like the reformers try to teach. This is about a literal kingdom with Jesus present in it and ruling and reigning over his people. That has not 
happened yet. This is a teaching by Jesus to his disciples about an interim period that they will begin to live in and through. The kingdom has to wait for a future fulfillment. But when that time comes, the good Jews, those who have trusted in him, the good seed, will enter into the millennial kingdom and the evil ones who are the sons of the evil one and have coexisted with those Jews until that time will be separated from them. Now, as I said, there's a timelessness to this truth. There's validity for it in the church age as well, just as there was in the time of Noah and in the time of David and so on and so forth. Every dispensation has this. But this is brand new teaching about an interim period, a time in which the kingdom is delayed that Jesus is teaching his followers John had taught that the kingdom was near. Jesus had taught that the kingdom was near. The disciples took that message that the kingdom was near. Why didn't it come? Why is there a church? And that is because the Lord could not rule and reign at that time. What does this teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us we're not fruit inspectors. It's not my job to walk around and tell people who's saved and who's not saved. It's my job to present the message, to offer the opportunity, to help people grow in their faith, but I'm not the judge of whether or not you're saved or not. Because if I do that, if I start judging people and I start yanking people out of the ground, I'm going to pull out good people with them. That's what Jesus is teaching here. We're not to be pulling out plants Just because they look like weeds, they might be the real thing. We must, in our time, coexist with the lost who are also in the church until the Lord returns for us at the rapture. Then he will separate the true believer from those who are simply fakes. Until then, we must serve the Lord without becoming stumbling blocks to others in their faith in Christ, or without entering into the committing of lawlessness because we believe in grace. We should not fall into these acts of Israel. The church must hear the word of truth and understand it as it is meant to be understood by God. Otherwise, we fall into grievous error and lead people astray, just as the religious leaders of Israel did. May God bless his word to our lives that we might understand it and rightly divide it. Would you pray with me? He that hath ears, let him hear. Father, we are so grateful for the scriptures. Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom from above. May the Holy Spirit have freedom to interpret it in our lives today. Help us as the body of Christ to come together to lift one another up, to encourage one another, to love one another, to exhort one another unto good works. Help us never to become stumbling blocks to each other or to encourage others to commit lawlessness. Help us, Father, to be good seed, good plants in this church age as we await the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is the rapture. Our hope is the Lord coming to call us in the air to bring us home until we return with him and judge the world at his second coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.